John chapter 4, verse 1 to 42. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman Jesus replied, Believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to him, Come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvest a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. 
So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the women, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is a savior of the world. This is God's word. Father God, we pray that you would help us to see clearly how glorious and good the Lord Jesus is. We pray that Christianity for us would not just be something that we uh, believe intellectually, that we understand with our minds, but that we might say that knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills our hearts, makes us whole as people. Amen. There is no such thing as as an atheist. According to the Bible, there is no such thing as an atheist. I don't mean that there are no people who deny the existence of God. There are plenty who uh, don't believe there is a God. Plenty who would call themselves atheists. And if you are, um, there'll always be people here who wouldn't call themselves Christians. And if that's you tonight, I'm not trying to insult you or be clever. But I just want to make the point that when the Bible talks about God, it is not talking about a spiritual idea or a, a religious notion. In the way the Bible talks about God, every one of us has something that fills that category. The moment we talk about finding ultimate meaning in life, as soon as we admit that there is such a thing as right and wrong, not just my opinion, but there really is just a right and a wrong that's out there. The moment we talk about the search for for true identity or ultimate fulfillment or security or hope in the face of death, the moment we talk about those things, We're talking about the things that the Bible says all of us look for, but are found truly, ultimately, only in Jesus Christ, in God. See, the God of the Bible is not just one of the gods on the shelf if you decide to choose uh, the religion section, the religion aisle of life supermarket. You know, okay, I've decided to be religious and there's, you know, a whole heap like cereal boxes. It's not like that. The God of the Bible presents himself as answering not just your religious questions and your spiritual interests, but your deepest, ultimate life questions. They're all tied up, answered, and found in him. Now, we all know the deep feeling of needing significance, of longing for fulfillment. We all know the deep need for identity and meaning. We all know the the desire for security and hope. We all have hardwired into us the longing for relational intimacy. And it gets drowned out in the noise of daily life, but it is always there. And when things go quiet, or when life wobbles, when a relationship crashes, or finance goes, or a crisis of illness hits us, well, suddenly the need to have answers to those things becomes pressing again. And of course, we all eventually find ourselves with a need for the answer to the ultimate question of life, which is death, a question that never really goes away. And over the past 2,000 years, millions upon millions of men and women, some rich, some poor, some extremely educated and some utterly illiterate, and yet people from all cultures have found that the answer to all those things is in the man Jesus Christ, the man revealed in John 4. And tonight, I want us to see from John 4 why that is and how you and I can share that satisfaction too. 
As we said, uh, John is um, he's less of a, a newsreel and more of a chat show. It's long, elaborate, uh, deep conversations with Jesus where you really get a feel for what the man was like. Uh, and tonight we see him talking to a very, very different character. Now, Jesus and the disciples are traveling from Judea in the south back up to his home area of Galilee in the north. Now, Jesus learned, chapter 4, verse 1, the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans got on about as well as Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland, or Sunnis and Shia in Iraq. Uh, The Samaritans were the remnants of the ten northern tribes of Israel. They were invaded in 722 BC by the Assyrians. And the Assyrian policy was not to leave people groups, but they would intermingle and make them interbreed so that they would no longer be the the Israelite people left there. And so the other Israelites, the, the Judeans who which is where we get the word Jews from, the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin. They looked on these Samaritans, these northerners, and they they basically looked at them the same way that uh, a lot of whites viewed blacks in pre-civil rights deep south in America. They just didn't treat them as fully human. And yet, we read in John 4, verse 4, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, any Jew reading this says, no, you didn't. Uh, If we've got a map, um, you'll see. So Jesus has been down here, Jerusalem. Uh, Samaria's here. He's going back up to Galilee. Any uh, religiously Orthodox Jew goes this way, crosses the, um, the Jordan River, and then goes up and across. Nobody goes that way. You just didn't do it. And so when John says Jesus had to go through Samaria... Either he's completely just wrong, or he's making a very important point, which is that just as Jesus had a meeting with one of the central characters of the Pharisees, the Jewish religious establishment in chapter 3, Nicodemus, so it is just as important for Jesus. He has a divine appointment with an outcast, half-caste, nobody in terms of the people of God. She matters to him just as much as Nicodemus. And she is as much at the heart of God's purposes for salvation as Nicodemus was. It's a profound little point that's being made subtly by John. Now, after walking some miles, it's about 60 miles on rough roads from Jerusalem to Sychar, Jesus sits down and we hear that he's exhausted. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was noon. Now, he may be fully God, but he's also fully human. He can calm storms and raise the dead with his divine power, but his human legs get tired. And so he's thirsty and needs a drink after walking 60 miles. And as he sits there, he meets a thirsty woman. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Yes, I know that Jesus is the one who's asking for a drink of water, but although he is physically thirsty, it is the woman who is thirsty in this account. He meets a thirsty woman. Jesus' physical thirst is just the vehicle to reveal a much greater thing. The whole passage is about her spiritual thirst and how he will bring satisfaction for the thirsty. 
But she is not the sort of woman you expect Jesus to hang out with. In a highly conservative traditional culture, if you remember from the reading, we find out she's on a sixth man. You don't do that back then. Uh, We're not told how she got there. I mean, who knows? Maybe married young. First husband died, remarried before she was ready. Second marriage collapses under the weight of her grief. And then, what, constantly searching for the right man and pretty soon known in town as open to any man. And all the while, all the while dealing with the jibes, the jokes, the gossips, the whispers. And living with the inner pain and turmoil and the fading hope that this relationship will be different, that this one will last knowing that the clock is ticking on her beauty and her ability to win another man if this one doesn't pan out. I mean, we don't know exactly what's going on. We do know that she's come to the well in the middle of the day, in the scorching sun, the time when the other women won't be around, where she doesn't have to deal with the looks, the sniggers, and the cold shoulders. And there sitting beside the well near the dusty trail is a man who immediately strikes up a conversation with her. Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? She's not shy about chatting to men, it's pretty obvious, in spite of the conservative culture. And the conversation is sort of playful sparring at first, but it does change. Because it's very quickly obvious that he's not after what every other man is after with her. In fact, he's not after anything at all. He's offering something to her. Something she needs. Just at this point, it is worth noticing something very remarkable about Jesus. In the aftermath of uh, Me Too and our re-evaluation of the heroes of the past, uh, far back in history as well as the recent past, we are only too aware that the history of powerful men is not a pretty one especially when it comes to the way that they relate to women. And yet Jesus is unbelievably different. One reason Christianity spread so rapidly amongst women in the early centuries, it was mocked by uh, pagan philosophers like Celsus for the number of women that flocked to this religion. You know, why would you want that? Surely if it's going to be a a world-changing thing, it should only be for the men, they were thinking. That's how philosophy worked back then. But Christianity was different. Women flocked to it. And one reason was that at the heart of Christianity was a man with absolute power who treated women with absolute respect. One who valued and gave dignity to women. And it's stunning that 2,000 years later, think of all the ways that morality has shifted in Western culture in the last 2,000 years. All the things that we used to think were wrong and we now think are right. All the things that we are not so sure about anymore. And yet, throughout all those 2,000 years, and even today, if anything, Jesus' treatment of the marginalized, the powerless, and the vulnerable looks more amazing and more attractive. I don't think you can say that about any other ancient figure. Let's get back into the story. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water from the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. 
The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He shows what he means in verse 14. If we get this living water, whatever it is, we'll never thirst again and somehow it will lead to eternal life. I mean, they're always battering on about the, the health benefits of, of spring water or the latest thing. But, you know, here is water that gives you eternal life. That is a, that's a claim I think the Advertising Standards Authority would want to look at if you saw it on the supermarket bottles. Jesus is not, he's clearly not talking about physical bottles of water. I think she's trying to work out exactly what he is offering as, as she replies to him. When he asks, well, what seems to be on the face of it an innocent question. He told her, verse 16, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now, why on earth would Jesus do that? You know, here's a woman who's interested in Jesus, who wants to find out more. And why would he raise her car crash of a home life? What he's not saying is, oh no, you're, too, you're living in sin. You can't come to me. You can't become a Christian if you're living in sin. He's saying something much more profound. The reason that he challenges her domestic arrangements is that when Jesus talks about living water, he's not talking about some spiritual thing that's unconnected from the realities of daily life. He's saying, I want to offer you something which will satisfy you deeply. And what I am offering is therefore a direct challenge to your domestic arrangements. Or rather, your relationships with men are a poor substitute for what your heart really longs for. The fourth century theologian Augustine said it best, the African theologian, Oh God, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Uh, the French philosopher Pascal put it in, a, in another way. There is a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man and woman. God created you to know and to enjoy him. That's why you were created. He created you to find ultimate meaning and fulfillment in him. He created you to build your identity on him, to find security and satisfaction in him. And whether you consider yourself religious or not, all of us look for those things. It's what it means to be human. It's that thing where if we've not got it, we think, if I have that, life will have been worth living. I don't know what it is for you, financial security, husband, children, whatever. Or it might be that thing that we have and we are terrified of losing. We think our our lives will just cease to have meaning if we lose it, our looks, our finance, our reputation, whatever. The problem is that only God is big enough, only God is reliable enough, only God is fulfilling enough and true enough to take the weight of those expectations. You can only build your life ultimately on God and not be disappointed. It's, uh, life is basically, our hearts are like this sieve. And you can pour as much liquid as you like into the sieve and it's not going to fill up. Because the sieve is not designed to fill up with liquid. It'll only get full if you put something solid in it. And our hearts have got an infinite hole in them. And you can pour as many finite things, jobs, families, relationships, experiences, hobbies, looks, 
fitness. You can pour as many things as you like in, as many good things as you like in, but they'll never fill the infinite hole. Finite things can't fill the infinite hole. That's why the celebrities and business leaders who have all the stuff that we really want are so often full of despair. You and I live in the hope, look, if if I had those things, I wouldn't feel the way they feel. We haven't yet got to the top of the mountain, and so we're still convinced. If I could only get up there, oh, it would feel great. It would feel wonderful. And yet it's an absolute cliche of almost every celebrity biography of those who've really got to the top, that they, they have a Bob Geldof moment. Is that it? And they all seem to express this same... I got everything I dreamed of and it's just not enough. You see, God is not just the answer to your spiritual Sunday needs. He is the answer to your deepest needs. He is the center point of life and without him, nothing will make sense. And you can have everything, but if you don't have God, it will not be enough. You will never be fully and finally content without God. Now, in one sense, none of that's too desperately uncomfortable for us to hear. Lots of people these days recognize the importance of developing the spiritual side of your life. But Jesus is not saying, uh, humans, you need to connect with the gods that are appropriate for your culture. He's saying, humans from every culture come to me, to Jesus, and only in him will we find living water. Why that is emerges in the religious discussion in verses 19 to 26, which is a little bit more awkward in our culture. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Now, there is nothing rude about his woman. It sounds, you know, it just doesn't come across well in English, does it? But it's, it's, it's actually a respectful form of address. It's just, we don't really have a, a, another word in English that perfectly matches it. But the more important thing is what comes after it. You know, she tries to tie him up in the Samaritan versus Jewish thing. And Jesus doesn't do the postmodern thing of, well, you Samaritans worship on that mountain, the Jews worship on this mountain, but actually, neither of you are right. All are different paths to the same God. He doesn't do that at all. He says there's one God in verse 22. You've got to worship him in truth. And the truth is, you Samaritans are ignorant about the truth about God. The true God is the one revealed to the Jews in the Old Testament. God is spirit. And those who worship him truly don't make physical idols or tie him to one particular place. And because he is spirit, he's not like anything physical on earth we could carve. He's the God of the whole universe. So you must worship him in spirit because that's who he is. You're not free to work out, uh, we want to worship him here and do it this way. And you've got to worship him in truth. You can't just make it up as you go along. Jesus' point is pretty simple, but it is profound. It is only through him, only through Jesus, that you enter into a relationship of worship with the true God. 
It is only through Jesus you enter into a relationship of worship with the true God. Only through him are you, is our soul plugged into the relationship for which we were designed. Worshipping the living God in spirit and truth. It's what the psalmist came to realize all those centuries before. In Psalm 63, the words that we had read earlier. You God are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. Our souls do not just thirst for an experience of the divine. Our souls thirst for communion with the one true God. The God revealed at the temple in Jerusalem. But the God ultimately revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to bring satisfaction for the thirsty and then secondly, much more briefly, salvation for the world. As we've done in the last few weeks, we're just going to look at a bit of the second half just to shed light on the first half. But we'll look at it much more briefly. So the disciples and then the Samaritans, if you saw um, in the reading, they come to, to Jesus. But we see clearly he is not just God's answer for Jewish longing. He's not come to make the Samaritans become like Jews. He has come to call all humans to him. Verse 27. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Messiah? They came into the town, out of the town and made their way towards him. Now that is just odd. Imagine here, thought experiment. Next Sunday, I tell you, when you come to church next Sunday, we're going to give you a screen that will be strapped to your front and it will just stream through all the things you've ever said and thought and done. Who's still coming to church next Sunday? Who thinks that'll be a really good week to invite friends? And he says, he told me everything I've ever done. Come and meet him. Surely it's run and hide, not come and meet. It's extraordinary. But although she has been radically exposed, the darkest part of her life has been brought out into the daylight. Although she's been radically exposed, she's not been shamed by Jesus. She's been liberated and changed You see, when it comes to sexual ethics, the way modern thinking goes, we think religion says, change your behavior and you'll be accepted by God. Modern culture thinks the healthy approach is, you don't need to change your behavior. Just accept who you are. And everybody else should accept and celebrate it too. Christianity says something different from either of those approaches. Jesus says, I see the very, very worst in you. The very worst. But I've come to forgive you. And to accept you. And that will empower radical change. We don't change to be accepted. We don't just accept ourselves the way we are. No, we we get accepted by Jesus. And then we change. That's why John records the lovely little detail in verse 28. She left her water jar behind. He's subtly hinting that her days of searching in relationships with men for what she should be looking at in a relationship with God. Those days are over. She now knows Jesus. She's got a spring of living water bubbling up inside her. She's been exposed, now accepted, and now she's radically changed. Verse 31. Uh, The disciples then urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat you know nothing about. 
they asked each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months till harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Even now, the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life. So the sower and the reaper may be glad together. That's the saying, one sows, another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you've not worked for. Others have done the hard work. You've reaped the benefits of their labor. Knowing God through Jesus is water for the thirsty. Serving God through Jesus is food for the hungry. That's his point there. And that food is bringing the message of salvation to other thirsty people. The ripe harvest field of verse 35. And so verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told them, he told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Just two things from those final verses. Just when you think Jesus has narrowed things down by stating there's only one true God and you can only worship him in spirit and truth. He's the God revealed to the Jews, fulfilled in me, and you can only worship him in spirit and truth through me. Just when it feels like Jesus has narrowed everything down, he expands it out. He is the saviour of the world. There really is one pill and one pill only that can cure the human condition. But God has made that pill freely available to the whole human race. The death of Jesus really is the only way you can be saved from your sins and come into a relationship with God. The only way. But it is available to every human being. For all you have to do is trust in Jesus. Secondly, just look again at verse 42. We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. The Samaritans came to Jesus because of what someone else had told them. But now they experience things for themselves. And you cannot have secondhand Christianity. You need to meet Jesus for yourself. It's not enough that your parents or your housemates, or your siblings trust in Jesus. You cannot satisfy a gnawing hunger or a parching thirst by hearing about somebody else having a drink and a meal. The same goes for spiritual life, for intimacy with God. You can't satisfy the longing at the heart of your soul by hearing about other people's satisfaction. Jesus is the saviour of the world, but he's come to be your saviour, and you need to put your trust in him. I remember uh, doing a 10-mile run uh, on an adventure holiday in the States years and years and years ago, up in the Adirondacks, where um, Last of the Mohicans was filmed. Great film. Um, and uh, it was a really hot day. It was blisteringly hot, a real scorcher of a, a summer day, kind of like June in Britain is every year, uh, certainly uh, the last few days. And uh, you could just feel, as you ran on the road, you could feel the heat radiating off the tarmac. And being a stupid teenager, I hadn't drunk enough beforehand. By the time I got eight miles in, I was so thirsty, I'd have drunk someone's spit. I was just absolutely dying. And the last two miles, you ran along this lake. Uh, the road took you along and around a lake, and the water just shimmered and sparkled in the sunlight. And if anything, it made the agony of thirst worse just to see the water there inviting you, just the other side of the barrier. 
And you got to the finish line, and it was just magic. I can still remember. You, as you crossed the finish line, they handed you a great hunk of watermelon, and you actually finished on the shingle and just carried on running into the lake. And I cannot begin to tell you. I do not have words to express how good it felt to just collapse into that cool, crystal clear water. Uh, I swear, I drank so much, you could watch the levels of the lakes sort of lowering before your eyes. It was just incredible. Jesus says you're thirsty and God designed you to be thirsty. That's not a a design flaw. The reason that God designed you to be thirsty is so that you would have the experience of having your thirst quenched by the crystal clear waters of a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Finding your identity, hope and fulfillment in him, the spring water of a relationship with God is what you were designed for. But let me just prick the happy bubble for a second. Because I guess many of us who would call ourselves Christians hear a little voice piping up at this point saying, yeah, I trust in Jesus and I still feel thirsty. I don't always feel content and fulfilled if I'm honest. Why is that? First, it's because we still sin. If you trust in Jesus, your salvation's secure forever. He brings us into a relationship with God the Father as loved children. And we can never be thrown out of the family because Jesus has won our place in the family. But when we sin, we don't enjoy the relationship. You don't enjoy that intimacy with God when you're doing stuff that offends, that angers, that sickens God. Sin ruins it. It's the first reason we still feel thirsty. The second reason is because... Well, as well as being thirsty, you and I are full. That's the truth. The truth is we spend so little time meditating with Jesus. So little time reflecting on the wonders of the salvation that he's won for us. So little time in communion with him as we read the Bible and pray and deepen that relationship. So little time gathered in corporate worship. And so often when we are here, we're only half here and we're distracted We just don't drink very often from God's fountain, so it's no wonder we're thirsty. But as well as being desperately thirsty, we're full. We fill our hearts with other things, other longings, dreams and plans about acquiring stuff, houses and holidays and whatever. We build our hopes around and we pour our efforts and our daydreams and and build our longings into relationships and careers. And so we leave very little room in our hearts For the thing that will really satisfy us, knowing and being known by our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. My dog is um, not really a hot weather dog. He's he's happy swimming in the North Sea in January. He's nuts. Uh, uh, He's not so happy wandering around um, hot streets in July. It's just not his thing. And so he's always gasping to find something to, uh, some water to to lap, because the only way dogs can cool down. And... We always make sure there's a lovely bowl of clear, cold water for him at home. And he knows when he gets back from the walk, there'll be lovely, cold, clear water. But he's stupid. Dogs are like their masters, apparently. Um, and he, as he walks along, he'll see so the remnants of, of a sort of muddy swamp bit in the park where, where there's a drain. And he'll lick the mud because he's thirsty. And then there'll be stuff, sort of filthy water running into a sewer. And he'll lick that. And he'll keep doing it through the walk. And then he'll get home and he won't be thirsty 
for the beautiful bowl of cold, clear water because he's filled himself with filth. We're all thirsty. And Jesus says, don't drink from the toilet. Drink from my fresh fountain. Don't drink from muddy puddles. Have a spring of water bubbling up inside you. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you that you have built into us longings, a thirst, because there is satisfaction for that thirst to be found in you. Help us, we pray, to to dive into that relationship with you, to spend time with the Lord Jesus in his word and prayer, to give ourselves to you in corporate worship, that we might feel satisfied, that we might know the salvation, the security, the identity, the fulfillment, the relational intimacy, the purpose that we were designed for. Help us to find that in Christ, that we might be satisfied and full and glorify you. Amen.